Hello everyone and thank you for joining us on this webinar, Sales, the Sales Process and How to Manage Sales. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in the various countries where this webinar is taking place. We thank them for allowing us to meet on their land, we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and we extend that respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. I also want to let you know that this session is being recorded so that it can be shared with the people who are not able to join us today. We had several hundred people sign up for this webinar and others who couldn't attend did ask us if we could record it so they can view it later. By way of introduction, my name is Mel Cross and I'm an ANZ Business Bank Regional Executive based here in Victoria. Today's webinar is an example of ANZ's commitment to help build communities where individuals thrive and business owners learn how to start, run and grow their companies. ANZ has worked with thousands of companies. We understand that companies differ in so many ways. For example, industries they operate in, age of the business, number of employees and the markets in which you operate. But Successful and growth-oriented business owners and CEOs or managing directors have several things in common. They all have a passion and a drive to succeed. They face reality and they develop solutions to problems as quickly as possible. They have the mental tenacity to push through hard times and the resilience to bounce back. They understand how to lead and to manage their people they are focused on their customers and they understand what their customers value. And importantly, they know how to market and sell that value to their prospects and their customers. We have three guests joining us today. Our first guest, Paul Farrell, is a business owner and a customer of ANZ, who two years ago graduated from the ANZ Business Growth Program that Dr. Jenna Matthews designed and directs. We've also got Ryan Williams. He is the Playford Chair in Business Growth at the Australian Centre for Business Growth. Ryan is an international business executive. He's a strategist and entrepreneur with two decades of experience in helping companies scale. And of course, we have Dr. Jenna Matthews who will facilitate the discussion with our two guests. Dr. Jenna is an international expert on entrepreneurial leadership and business growth, a professor and the founding director of the Australian Centre for Business Growth at the University of South Australia Business. Dr. Jenna studied at the University of London. She did graduate work at Yale University and also has a doctorate from Harvard University. She holds the ANZ funded chair in business growth at the University of South Australia Business and also directs the ANZ Business Growth Program. During her career, Dr. Jenna has founded several companies of her own. She's invested in many, many more and has worked with hundreds of CEOs and leadership teams all over the world, including in New Zealand and Australia. She has been the global thought leader for SAP, was on the founding team of the Kofman Foundation Center for Entrepreneurial Leadership and was named one of the 18 women business gurus in the world and is also a member of the International Women's Forum. In 2018, she was named one of the leading women in Australia's innovation ecosystem. In that same year, the AFR named her one of the 100 women of influence in Australia. Welcome, Dr. Jenna. Thanks, Mel. Ryan uh, and I are delighted to be here and doing this ANZ webinar in sales and so pleased 
that Paul Farrell has agreed to join us as well. Clearly, sales is a very popular topic, given the numbers of people who have signed up. And I want to give a special thanks to ANZ for being the founding sponsor of the Australian Centre for Business Growth. Our mission is to help CEOs and their executive teams learn how to grow their companies, because growing companies create jobs, and that creates thriving communities. And so, as you can see, ANZ's mission and the Centre's mission are totally aligned. So let me talk about the center in terms of what we don't do. We don't do programs for startups. We don't do programs for micro companies, those with one to four employees. We don't do programs for large companies, those with 200 or more. It's possible that they grow to 200 or more when they're in the program, in which case, of course, they finish the program, but we don't market to them. Our programs are designed for small and medium-sized companies, roughly about 270,000 of them. Why? Because if they grow, they will create the jobs of the present and the future that we need to support our economy. I've heard people proudly say, oh, Australia is a nation of small business. Yeah, but surely we don't want to stay that way. We want to have people moving from small to medium to large and understanding how to do that and how to get a reasonable percentage of them growing, creating jobs and creating these healthy communities that we both want. So if we want that, we've got to work hard. And that's why these webinars are so important because over a quarter of Australian companies have revenue of less than 50,000. And only 3% have revenue of more than 5 million. So that's a big deal. So we have focused on helping people understand how to grow. We just don't talk about the need to grow. We don't try to encourage them to grow. We try to give them the tool skills to grow. And as one of the graduates of our first program, ANZ customer said, you, I now understand what to do, when, why, and in what order in order to grow. So it's wonderful to be able to introduce our guests who can also talk about sales in addition to me. Paul is the managing director of NGIS Australia. He graduated a couple of years ago from the program. He's grown NGIS from a boutique sort of map maker digitizing house, which he will describe, to a complete provider of mapping and location technology solutions to large companies. And he's working with globally recognized technology company partners, such as Google, Capto, Erie, and so forth. So Paul, a little bit about your personal origin story, how you got into this, and then a little bit about what you do, what the business does, and uh, how growing um, a company that does mapping is pretty exciting, even though it may not sound like that to the average Joe. Thanks, Jenna. Yeah. And um, thanks, ANZ, for inviting me to, to talk today. Um, look, I, I uh, grew up like a lot of Australian kids. Uh, it was sport, sport, sport. And that's all I thought I'd be doing is being a professional athlete. <laughs> Of course, those realities don't come into fruition. So I ended up at university uh, and I ended up doing a, an honours degree in, in geography. Uh, and I, 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 as a lot of you would, uh, of my age, would um, recognise getting a job back in the, the late 80s, early 90s was not as easy as it is today. So I actually was virtually unemployed for six months trying to get a job. But I finally got a job in the government. Quickly realised after a year or two, the government really wasn't for me and uh, joined NGIS in 1994, which is a, a long, long time ago. 
But my story um, with NGIS in Australia uh, was only a year or two because I had a, a yearning to travel and to get into business management. And I was lucky enough to have an opportunity to, with a scholarship to go up to Asia and learn about business practices and start a business up there. So I spent uh, four years with my wife living in Hanoi and having a fantastic time building a business, but also just experiencing everything that is the unique business experience of working in, and living in Asia. So uh, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Thailand, um, got to travel a lot. But in 2000, I came back and um, I sold the shares in my business up there that I created to the other shareholders. And I used that money to buy into NGIS Australia back in 2000. And I've been here ever since um, and really just enjoyed uh, working uh, with a company like NGIS with the, the ethics that it has, uh, which very much aligned to me and uh, building this business up, but like you said, from being a, a boutique player to being a, uh, what would be considered an SME. And um, I suppose what makes me passionate about this area, I've always been into maps, I've always been into geography. I, I love that side of things. Uh, ever since I was young, I was poring over maps and studying foreign places. And, and this just, you know, it's great to go to a company where you actually, what you do is what you love. And, it, um, it, it, and I'm surrounded by people who are similar to that who are passionate about maps and passionate about making sure they're used well um, and look i get asked a lot what 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 is it our business what is mapping technology what is location technology um, our, our industry has changed a lot over the last few years one of the biggest changes has been the introduction of a technology like google maps which has put mapping into everybody's hands so that was a monstrous uh, shift for our industry in that maps, digital maps were now available at no cost to everybody. The other thing that became uh, was the introduction of smartphones and, and GPSs in those smartphones. So not only have we, have we got the maps from Google Maps, we've actually got an ability now to know where you are on that map or where your assets are on that map. So having that context of where you are and what's around you is basically the fundamental uh, fundamental concept of, of mapping and, and basically charting a course for where you are and where you wanna go. They are the most effective communication medium on the planet. Uh, they speak every language, uh, they're memorable. Um, they help you chart your course in, in whatever business you're in. So that's why we're really passionate to make sure they're used well. Uh, and just prior to this, I was, I was being asked by some of the other fennel, uh, the, the panel members you know, give us an example. And um, I was talking about a project we're doing with Unilever at the moment where they have a real challenge, which is a challenge that a lot of organisations have now in terms of making sure their supply chain is ethical. It's, it's a term called sustainable sourcing. So where do you get your raw materials from? It's no longer an excuse to say we outsource that. You need to be, uh, organisations are being held to account for where they're primary materials are coming from. Uh, and for Unilever, palm oil is a big input to a lot of their products. And being able to prove that their palm oil providers, of which there's 20, 30,000 of these, are doing the right thing and specifically not clearing native forest to, to produce that palm oil 
is an incredibly important thing for them. And through our, the use of satellite technology and location technology, we're able to provide a solution to Unilever so that they can not only monitor their supply chain themselves and, and, and monitor the management practices of their suppliers and, and put into place some measures if they have to, to alter their behaviours. Most importantly then, they can also prove to their key stakeholders that they do know what's going on in their supply chain. They are, do have a handle on the management of these suppliers and they have an ability to do something about it very, very quickly. And that makes people feel very good, whether they're investors, whether they're employees, whether they're a range of stakeholders, that makes people feel comfortable with the organisation they're dealing with. That's just one example of a lot, you know, of, of using location technology, mapping technology uh, in a good way and it makes a real impact. Thanks, Paul. I, I love hearing the company's origin stories, the CEO's origin stories, but how good it is that you're doing something that you're personally passionate about, that you've always loved to do. Because it doesn't feel like work when you're doing what you love to do, right? You do what you love and love no, what you do. No, no, no. It, well, it is work, but it makes it easier, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know why you got into it and why you stay in it as well. Okay, so let's let's talk about Ryan for a second here. Ryan's, as he said, joined us in January. Quite a distinguished career before moving here from South Africa. He and some friends started and grew Notabene in South Africa, which was the most awarded marketing strategy consultancy in the 2000s. And then worked with some well-known global brands, including Unilever, by the way, Volkswagen. And, and then led and managed Unlimited, which was a sort of a mid-sized incubator with a lot of companies in it. There were about 400 staff and maybe 15, 16 companies. Then managed to earn Canacore, Africa's largest uh, cinema chain, had 1,700 staff. Been voted the media innovator of the year, the top 40 under 40 in South Africa several times. Um, just so, so pleased that you've joined our center to bring all that knowledge and experience to us. So thanks, Ryan. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you got intrigued by doing sales, what kinds of sales you've done, B2B, B2C, as Paul talked about, he's doing kind of channel sales through, through Google and different size companies, and what is it about selling that appeals to you? Thank you, Janet, uh, to ANZ for, uh, for helping drive our center and, and so many SMEs across the country. Very grateful to have the opportunity uh, to chat today. Paul, it's very good uh, uh, to meet you and, and to hear the discussion around Unilever. I think when I chat about um, how I got into sales, it's probably easier to rewind a little bit and talk about uh, my expertise as a strategist, you see. So when we founded Nota Bene, um, that was kind of my core skill was helping folks think through uh, directions and think through uh, how they're going to achieve certain outcomes in their businesses. And I guess when you have a, a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So I was convinced that strategy and marketing were uh, the cures for everything. And, uh, and at some point in time, uh, I was convinced to take on a bit more responsibility by a couple of my co-founders and get out of the, out of the, the tools, get off the tools and, and start thinking about how we grow our own business. And as well, you know, like so many people, uh, we have a great product. The customers will come to us. And, and whilst that was certainly true, uh, I guess, in the early stages, 
uh, you know, very quickly dawned on me that oh, perhaps we need to have some sort of discussion or thinking about how we sell to our own customers and that there are some transferable chunks of knowledge in the marketing space that we could apply and the strategy space that we could apply into sales. And so that's become, I think, quite a, uh, was quite an interesting learning uh, for me. And, and I guess also to think about how uh, sales funnels actually exist uh, all over a business. And so often in the in the business to business space, I think we think about uh, just the business to business sales function and we forget that if you're in a retail business, there is a sales funnel that exists there too. The folks that are walking through the shopping center, uh, the folks that are coming into your store, um, uh, those people walking past a particular shelf, that's also a type of funnel. Uh, and so I was able to uh, start thinking about the sales journey, uh, not just in the context of B2B sales as I'd experienced it, but also where sales would apply in all of these other organizations that we'd worked with uh, over the years. And then Jana, I guess to your point, one of the ones that I enjoyed is I found it's an awful lot of fun chatting to customers, uh, hearing their stories and uh, finding out about their business. You know, it's a, it's a rare privilege to talk to folks and everything from uh, chickens to uh, auto manufacturers, electronic firms. I've worked with LG, down to small micro enterprise. You know, four or five folks starting from a kitchen table, building out a software business to help um, improve pharmacy and drug delivery uh, across Africa. Yeah, so so an incredible diversity of companies to work with, and it's always really great to be having a conversation with those that are in, uh, I guess, in the sales environment. You meet all these really interesting people and learn about what they do. Thanks, Ryan. Um, again, really good to hear the background and the perspective that people are going to bring you and Paul as we're now talking about where we go with the rest of our webinar. Okay, so we've designed these as a way to get inside the head of these folks and to understand how they see the world sort of through their eyes. Um, we'll be listening to their thinking, their strategies, how they've gone to market, they've figured out how to sell and manage their sales teams. And in effect, we'll be covering four topics. I'm gonna to do a really fast review of the three C's and the four P's, which we kind of covered in the last session on marketing. But for those of you who weren't there, you need to know that this is the bedrock on which you build the sales strategies. Brian's gonna talk about some things that you can do to move from promoting your product to a large number of people, to selling it to a single customer. So he's gonna walk us through a very interesting graphic. Um, Paul and I are gonna talk about how you can think about pricing your products or different pricing strategies and when some work better than others. And then we'll talk about the job requirements of salespeople, what they do, and then we'll talk about what information they need to provide you so that you can do a better job of managing them and understanding that sales is in support of the organization and so generating revenue and predicting sales and predicting revenue ahead so that you know then how to build a company. So that's a lot to cover. So I'm going to begin with a very, very quick pass through the three C's and the four P's, right? Importance of doing market research and understanding who is your customer. So developing that before you think about getting out the sales strategy. I was working with the group and they just hadn't thought about their customers. They're gonna sell this and do a website and they're gonna do this and this, but for whom is all of this material being directed? Important to understand that. 
So who are your current customers? Who are your prospects? That would be one C. Who are your competitors? Who are they and why do customers buy from them instead of you? That's the second C. And then what is your own company's strengths and its competitive advantage vis-a-vis those other people that are already servicing people that you want to be your customers? Okay, so then you figure out where do you fit in all that, with which customers against which competitors, what is it that you have that's unique to you and your company? Then you think about the four Ps. What is the product or service I'm gonna offer, develop in light of what the customers need and want and what do we value? And, and by the way, what are the other competitors offering and how are we gonna differentiate that? Where are they gonna find out about us? How are they gonna access it? It's gonna be in a store, is it online? Is it just by subscription It just arrives every month on their doorstep? How are we going to price this? And as I said, Paul and I'll talk about that a little bit later in the webinar. And then how are you actually going to promote that you have this product or service? Social media or websites, thought leadership, sponsorship, lots of different ways that you can promote. And again, we talked about that last time. So Ryan, talk a little bit about how to move from this promoting your product or service to actually selling to a customer. Um, we've got a little bit of a graphic that we're going to pop up there that talks about those nine stages, all, all the way from awareness, piquing people's interest, I want to know more, getting them to, it's like, hmm, maybe I should consider this, to, ah, let me really evaluate this, to the, yes, I think I want it, to the, now I'm going to actually procure it or buy it, purchase it, and then I want more, and then I'm going to tell other people about it because I love it so much. That's a whole continuum there to pass through. So talk about some things that companies can do to move a customer along from awareness to actually purchasing and becoming raving fans. Thanks, Jenna. I think um, when, you're, when you're thinking about the promotion piece, uh, the standard sort of model is, is to think about, you know, how do you dial up awareness and then uh, how do you present, uh, I guess, the differentiators to a market so that People can uh, start to self-select how this may be relevant to fit into my life, uh, dial up uh, desire, so the, the AIDA style model, and then ultimately take some kind of action. This graphic here is, is sort of an expansion of that to say it's a more nuanced process. Um, beyond awareness and interest, there's some sort of consideration framing that happens where you would evaluate the services or whatever it is that fills your niche. I think oftentimes when we think about taking a product to market, uh, we assume that that need is unfulfilled. That's that's how the business would think about it. But the reality is that something else is already uh, already uh, covering that gap. In in Paul's case, you know, before digital maps, there were real maps. I mean, I, I recall as a kid having uh, having books, then you and you'd navigate and you're on a journey on that basis. You would evaluate those options that are in front of you and then make some decisions uh, on a value basis about uh, which option you want to go for, make a purchase and. And then hopefully uh, some kind of repeat transaction. So that, that journey walks through. The goal of the salesperson in thinking through this model, if this model is more traditionally about marketing, these same phases happen when you're doing sales, whether that's B2B or B2C. I'll talk about a B2B example uh, because that's probably more relatable. But there's a process by which the salesperson makes a customer aware that they're there that they want to come and see them and that they have something they'd like to chat about. You might have some collateral that you send ahead of time, or you might have had a marketing campaign that's a lead-in uh, to the conversation that you'd be having in sales. And then the salesperson would be managing their funnel 
uh, I often talk about you know funnels being like you know that sort of shape. You've got two ways to do this, right? You can make the funnel wider by having a greater marketing effort in the top and flow it through your regular process. Or if you work through this kind of structure in the model, you can take your funnel and start to think about how do I widen and make my sales process more efficient? So if I've got awareness going in, how do I get more businesses uh, to be evaluating my options? That means as a salesperson, I need to be more assertive in selling what makes things different in my brand or product, service. Uh, versus what the existing landscape is. I need to really understand those customers so that I can talk to what their needs are and how we service them better. And then further down the line, I could start to try and say, how do I make your evaluation process easier? How do I reduce friction uh, in your sales process so that you can get to an outcome a lot faster, make a decision, purchase from me? And then something I've seen in sales teams in the B2B space over the year, particularly sort of really high-flying salespeople early on in their career, is they think that's where the process stops. And then tomorrow they get up and they want to go and chase down the next customer. And actually, what that means is, you know, I don't know, you've signed a 12-month agreement for a service that you're providing. And then you wake up in month 11, three weeks and three days with about four days to go before the contract renewal and go, oh, you know, maybe I should go and see that customer and talk, talk to them about a renewal. That's way too late in the process. So there's also got to be a recontact that you make through this journey so that you can drive up the loyalty and the advocacy. Just because you've got the first sale out of the door doesn't mean that it stops there. You need to have that kind of continual contact, particularly in the B2B space, uh, to help reinforce why your service or product uh, matches well. Um, to reaffirm the purchase decision that folks made and to keep the relationship uh, warm so that you can also get feedback about how, how the experience of that product is going and that you can course correct and, and help for the next cycle, uh, reframe or readdress some of those needs that the customers might have. And ultimately what that should do is, be, is have a more intentional or controllable loyalty outcome in repeat purchase. And also through that journey, because you've built a bond and a relationship with, with your customers, uh, hopefully you've got a way to turn them into your fans that are advocates and start becoming uh, perhaps another sales channel for you, which I think you know, Paul might be able to chat about a bit more later on. You know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how many times I have made what in a way would be a one-time purchase, a home or a car or something, but the most successful experiences are when somebody follows up how did you like it and if you ever, ever need another one or when you're in the mood to buy a second piece of property or when you want to move and sell your house those kinds of relationships long-term relationships they're not very people don't make them very often in this b2b space and you're right especially if it's what you think of as a transactional sell the house you're happy goodbye sell the next house i hope they're happy the realtor who actually follows up and keeps track of people are more successful. Yeah. Okay, so that, that helps us rationalize the sort of logic behind that. Um, Paul, any any kind of commentary here? What what you do in terms of moving through sales and into advocacy? Oh, I think um, I, I think that diagram was was perfect. And if you think of traditional sales. Uh, it would have started in the middle of that diagram there, Ryan, somewhere. That's that's the knock on the door from the insurance salesman or the uh, the phone call you get these days from, hey, <clears throat> how offended do we get by these things these days? Because we're used to a different form of marketing now. Uh, and that whole uh, nurturing of a, 
a group of people to have a relationship with you without actually talking to them uh, is, is much more efficient for a start. But also when you do get to that middle of that diagram, Ryan, that you had, when you do get down to the sales conversations, you've, you're already well ahead of the curve because you already have a relationship with these. And I, I think it's about trust at the end of the day. Um, and so advocacy for me, and trust is with a person. It's typically an organisation can have, you can have trust with an organisation, but it, it, in, a, in a sales situation, a lot of time it comes down to the person. Do I trust you as a, as a person? Um, and, and trust for me is two things. It's, it's a combination of character and competency. So, so character, do you, what are your values? Do I relate to your values? Uh, do, you, do your actions match your words? Uh, do you follow through on things? Um, are you reliable? Those, those sort of things. And then competency, at the end of the day, you've got to deliver. The product's got to do what it said you said it was going to do or the service that you provide has got to live up to the expectations. So it's this combination because you can have the most, you know, character-ridden person, but if you don't deliver, you know, eventually they'll move on. So there's those combinations of character and competence through the whole sales process. My best experiences with salespeople are people that say, sorry, I don't think I'm for you. I think you should go over here. That's, that's honesty, that's character for me to say, hey, I'm not that hungry for the sale. It's so important that I do a good foot job for you and I don't think you're a match for me. Can I introduce you to someone else? That's a memorable experience for me. Um, and that, that whole trust piece is how we develop advocacy. Um, and uh, uh, we, we spend a lot of time early on making sure a, we develop a relationship, a strong professional relationship with our customers, but B, that we really rigorously make sure we can deliver well. And, and if we do those both right, we, we end up with a whole heap of advocates like we do right now. Um, in some ways, it makes business easier, Ryan, having all these, this process, it takes longer, but at the end of the day, it's much more sustainable when you've got all these advocates on your side. I, I wanna add one more thing that's maybe a subset of your character um, uh, concept, Paul, and that is respect for the people who are in the, who will be involved in influencing perhaps the sales process and who, who is the ultimate decision maker. So it's interesting that stats suggest that in many cases in a personal family, whatever, women make 80% of the decisions and yet so many salespeople sell for the men. I had a friend who went in to buy a car. She was committed to buying a BMW and looked at it and was all excited about it. And the salesperson said, why don't you bring your husband back in and you could do a test drive. And she walked right out and bought an Audi. So understanding who the ultimate decision maker is and having respect for the numbers of people that will be involved in that decision. And that's good for you as well in a, in a business sense because you may be selling to a single person and what if they get promoted or what if they leave? So building that whole set of people that you're selling to becomes important uh, in terms of building your credibility in the long-term relationship that you talked about. Cool. All right, we have designed several um, reference worksheets that you can use as we're going through this process. You'll see the reference to that. These are downloadable. 
And if you want to take notes on them now, great. Or you just take notes anywhere uh, on your own notepad if you want to do that as well. Paul and I are going to walk through very quickly the possible strategies for pricing your products. Um, there are about a dozen of them. So we'll talk and we'll just go back and forth. And Ryan, if you want to chime in and add color and flavor and context on any of these, by all means, please do. Yeah, good. Okay, so Paul, why don't you kick off with Cost Plus? Yeah, Cost Plus is, uh, and, and look, it's really interesting with these because we all, you know, we sell, but we consciously got a strategy of how we're selling. And these are all interesting uh, tactics or, or modes of selling and strategies for selling. Cost Plus is, uh, I find it's, it's, it's predictable, it's transparent in that you basically are just, saying to your customer i'm going to make a margin on whatever i provide you and uh so that if if a, if a unit costs you forty dollars and you're going to work on a ten percent margin um you'll be pricing it at forty four dollars and you see this a lot in the the building industry where maybe the the cost is unknown especially these days the costs are unknown and so the the customer knows at the end of the day they are just going to be wearing a margin on top of the cost so then there's this thing called value pricing, and that is pricing on the basis of what somebody would value. So I think of Tiffany's or Tesla, they command higher prices because people really value the brand and what it stands for. You know, I could buy a Tesla, I could buy a Ford Fiesta. There's $100,000 difference in a car that will get me transportation, but there's something that I value that I'm willing to spend another 100,000 for. Is it how I feel when I step out? Is it the statement I make to the world? Is it that I'm burning less fuel? Is it that the car doesn't have to get repaired as often? Is it I feel great when I step out like I'm a tech chick? All those are things that a customer would value and pay more for. So that's another way to think about pricing. Um, the next one is, is, is uh, well, it's economical pricing, basically using price as your differentiator. And you see this a lot where uh, especially for um, consumer goods and, and those operators, petrol operators, um, maybe making a cent or two uh, on every dollar, um, which is, for me, it's a bit of a scary concept because that's not how we run our business. It's very much on value, but it's a very, it's a, it's a, it is a clear model to go out there and play the volume game, but it does rely on volume. You have to have a lot of predictable throughput to be relying on that low skinny margin, but definitely a tactic. Yep. Um, another is, the, is what you would see airplanes doing all the time. You know, we all get to the same destination on the same plane, but how many different prices are there for seats on that plane? There's first class, there's economy plus, there's plus, there's sitting by the windows with more leg room, it's buying lunch or not buying lunch. Those, those would all be called price discrimination because you are discriminating on certain places that you're sitting in the plane uh, that you're going to charge more for. So that's, that's a, again, you take the same product, but you massage it in different ways and make it more appealing to certain customers with certain features and benefits. I guess bigger seats and getting there three seconds earlier in the first class is worth hundreds of dollars more to some people, not usually to me. Anyway, separate brands, white labeling. The next one's white labeling. And um, uh, this, this is where it's basically the same product with a different package 
and because it's got a different package or a different brand, it's 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 priced differently. Um, and I know this happens with a lot of industries. And one example, I've got a, a friend who works in the oats industry, and I know that different brands of of oats, are, which are all priced differently within a supermarket, they actually all come from the same place. But marketing and and all that side of, side of things has made one a more premium quality brand than potentially another. Yep. So there's another way to think about pricing and that is to look at the economics of it, which is what is it that we have to make in terms of revenue to cover the costs? It's a variation of what Paul talked about in terms of margin. So if we cover our costs, everything above that will drop to the bottom line. So if we need 60 people to buy seats in the movie theater and we sell 65 seats, those extra five seats are pure margin for us because we've already covered the fixed cost. So pricing on the margin was thinking about other ways. And Ryan, you would have done this, of course, with movie theater, right? A lot. Yeah. Um, trying to figure out how many times can you show the film and how many times can you get people in. And Although... Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Ryan will probably comment on the, the next one, which is the lost leader kind of concept. Yeah. Well, the lost leader one is is really it's 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 it, well, the the lost leader one. Sorry, there was a, a stereo going off in the background. Um, is is where you think about the long term uh, value of a client and make a loss early on, g given that you're going to get it back at some stage when you get loyalty. For example, uh, free free vet checkups for puppies, knowing that a puppy is going to last, a dog's going to last for 10 or 15 years, but there'll be a puppy for the six, first six months and hopefully they keep coming back after, after they've established a relationship with you. Yeah, I remember Ryan, you saying that when you were doing Sturkenicor, you realized that the, the margin was not in the tickets to the show. Yeah, mar margin's in the catering, right? So people think, when I, when I got asked to go in and help fix up the cinema business, um, I, I, I guess I had the same prejudice that everybody would. I walked in and said, oh, you know, the movie business is dead. Look at all these streaming platforms. Why would anybody want to buy a ticket to go to a theatre? It took me a while to get my head around the fact that it's not a movie business. It's a Coke and popcorn business. And movies happen to be the excuse for uh, bringing people in. And once you kind of have that rather liberating thought, it really empowers you to start thinking about uh, how would I sell the space, bringing this back to the sales environment, how would I sell the space so that uh, I can fill the seats and sell more Coke and popcorn? So on a Thursday morning when nobody's there, well, actually what you've got are a whole bunch of auditoria, lecture halls that are digitally enabled that I could uh, be using to host business seminars, to uh, bring kids in to be educated about stuff and do a raft of other things. And when you spoke about that pricing on the margin, that's a way to think about how do I fill up the space? Because that's dead time. If I give those tickets away for 10 bucks as opposed to 30 bucks that I would for the premium film on a, on a Friday night, it doesn't matter because the theaters are open anyway. I've got the staff in there anyway. And I was subsidizing those costs by just selling a lot of tickets on a Friday. Now I'm selling tickets on, uh, on a Thursday morning as well. And at the same time, bundling in that loss leader sort of conversation because I'm, I'm thinking about the discounting on the front end to get people in so that I can sell them a product that has higher value. So it sort of links together both of those concepts. Yep. 
So um, the next couple in a way sort of are two sides of the coin, bait and switch. I, you see this when, uh, oh, we're gonna sell these refrigerators on a Saturday morning, we have this great sale. Um, a small number of refrigerators at that special $99 price to lure in customers. And then rather quickly they sell and then I'm gonna sell you the regular price. So it's a way to get somebody into the store, bait them to come in and then switch them to a different product or a higher level or some other product that you're wanting to sell that day. Uh, the next concept is price skimming. And uh, you see this where organizations come out with something new, fandangled early on, um, where there is no competition and really there, um, but there's a whole heap of, of the market out there who are, we term early adopters who are prepared to pay a premium to be in first. So they they put their price up to to satisfy that market. And then when the competition enters, they reduce and, and rationalise their price to what normality is, but they take extra margin in the, in the early time um, while they can. And even sometimes they're able to drop their price so low that they force those competitors out of the margin. I've seen that a couple of times as well. Depends on how much margin you were able to get. Yeah. And then anchoring. I just didn't realize how, how important anchoring is in terms of pricing because you know, as this is advertising a higher list price, so I'm anchored in my mind to think these are $2,500 diamond earrings that today, Valentine's Day, you can buy for $250. Well, they're probably $220 earrings actually, but you anchored in my mind the thought that they might have been $2,500. So that's another way of getting me to think they're more valuable or expensive than they actually are. Um, I'm watching the clock here. I'm, um, just a little worried about doing too much more commentary. Should we go on to the next concept and drill down to the salesperson? Hmm, thanks. Okay, so we have here another tool that is talking about the qualities, of a starter list of what great salespeople do that makes them successful. Um, any of us could run through these very quickly. Ryan, do you want to do that? Uh, shall we comment on, or shall I mention the concept and then you talk about what the issues are that they do? Good, okay. Person does good prospecting. Prospecting is incredibly important for a salesperson to do. I think particularly, uh, Chana, when you're starting to think about how you build a business out, being able to evaluate prospects on, uh, on the life stage of where your business is at. So, you know, where are you on the balcony? Have you been in business a long time? Are you in the early stages? Uh, which are the easiest uh, sales folks to be able to having the to have that those conversations? Which which businesses or individuals would you be delaying further down? So, prospecting is not just about identifying uh, potential sources of business for your company, but also about being really skillful at understanding the order in which you need to manage the pipeline, because there's no point in delaying all of, I'll call them the easier sales, uh, to later in the day. Uh, you know, you're going to wake up and have no revenue coming into your business because you've been working so hard on all the hard conversations. And so finding a good balance and even across a sales team, finding a balance of different folks within your sales team that are good at different things uh, when it comes to prospecting and identifying those people. 
part of that's wrapped up the second concept, I guess, which is knowing knowing the product. So being able to map who's where in their journey also means that you need to know your product so that you can you can think about the order of having those conversations with people um, and, and prioritizing against who's already in the ring for the kind of service that you offer. I think, Ryan, that's really important with the, uh, the marketing uh, you, the cycle you explained before because uh, customer walks in the door educated before they talk to you. So if you don't know your product, it stands out very, very quickly. So you need to understand the product. You need to have a fair understanding of different type of people and what they'll be interested in. It's sort of raised the bar a lot in terms of the knowledge of the product for a salesperson. You can't hoodwink people. Mm. Yep. And how it differs from competitors' products as well. Why should I buy your car instead of this car that you're telling me about? Yeah. Part of that, and that sort of talks into that next point, is is the ability to listen and build rapport. So mm. good salespeople are able to uh, understand how to how to process. The, the failure is walking into the conversation and saying, "I've got this great thing. Here's how it's going to work for you," uh, and forgetting that there's a person on the other side of the table who has business need or a or a service need or a product need, and you need to probably allow enough space and time to hear what they're trying to tell you uh, before you just jump in um, and try and, and force your solution. It also, building that rapport allows you to diagnose what aspects of your of your product or solution are likely to hit the right things to solve somebody else's problem. That creates a stickier sale. Okay, we're going to have to cycle through these really fast because we've got a couple of other concepts to cover. So I'm going to kind of jump in and go through and do a quick summary. Obviously, they need to look professional, dress, dress, be polite, arrive on time, you know, document the call, follow up, all those sorts of things. Developing the accounts, which is not just once in a while, but systematically going back and developing a number of contacts within the company itself. Responding to inquiries promptly, answering questions, getting back to people within 24 hours at the latest. Um, being consistent about achieving targets that you say you're going to achieve, not shoot the moon one month and, and miss it the next month. Meets the kind of minimum requirements in terms of calls, meetings. When you're with customers asking great questions, as you said earlier, um, uncover opportunities, new opportunities. Oh, that's an issue then what about this possible part of our solution? And then able to close. I mean, I joke that Australians hate to ask for the sale and I hate to tell you I'm not gonna give you the sale, so we just agree to have another coffee. And it's sort of like, no, if this isn't the right solution, that's okay, not right now, you don't have money now. Well, we can keep talking about this for later, but I need to know because I need to be developing a list of people who will be generating revenue for our company. And so that leads then to follow through. Hmm. That's such a, a critical skill, knowing the closing window, uh, being able to read the signals for when you can when you can finish up the conversation. Um, and it also goes back to Paul's piece about trust a lot earlier on, is if you can identify closing windows, it oftentimes reflects back to the people that you're selling to subconsciously that you've heard them and understand that this is now the right time to have the conversation. So. It's actually not a difficult thing once you start thinking very consciously about uh, when is the right time to be finishing up. Mm. So that's in effect a set of issues for you to be measuring performance of salespeople against. 
But then there's a set of issues that you as the management management need to understand and be on top of so you can begin to predict the revenue that's going to be coming into the company. And that's our sort of our third reference tool that you have, which is the sort of the, the sales report for each prospect by the likely date of closing. So your salespeople need to be able to tell you, tell themselves, yeah, and then of course tell you, go, so what's the probability of closing? This prospect will buy whatever product or service. Uh, by which date? And, and what is it that they value about this? You know, why are they interested in the product or service? Do, do they actually have budget? Do they budget this quarter, next quarter, this year, next year? You know, talking to somebody who loves your product but has no budget for it. Hmm, we got to keep the relationship going, but I have to move on to somebody who can actually pay for this. Um, when you're talking to them, are there KPIs, are there performance indicators? You need to come in and you need to complete this in the first three months, or this product needs to do X, or we need to have reports every month, or I need to have a weekly meeting. So there are different kinds of performance indicators, but you need to be clear about what those are so you can build those in and the decision process. Well, first I have to present to my boss and my boss then has to talk to the CFO and the CFO has to sign off. And then it has to go to people and culture and then it has to go to somebody else. And that's a long process more than, yes, Paul has the capacity to sign off. Wonderful, let's go, here's the, here's the contract. I need to know who else is in there talking to them if possible. You know, what is it that they're offering? What is it that it's appealing? Um, do you have any sense of what, what the, the numbers are that they're talking about. Um, finally, um, do we have the right solution for the customer? You mentioned earlier being able to walk away. Paul, you mentioned saying, no, we don't. Brian, you mentioned, no, we don't. I've had a situation as well where I had a minister say, do you have a program for X? And I said, no, that's not what our programs are designed for. I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. I, I didn't have another alternative to send them to, but that would have been very powerful. And then to, to look at this and say, is this going to be a re good return on investment of time and energy of our salespeople? Or is this a client who's just going to talk and talk and loves to talk and talk? And we've all known those and they all love us and we all feel good when we're leaving. And then we all, everybody says, yeah, 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 we're going to buy this, but we have no idea when. So any comments on that? Oh, look, I think, um, I think it brings up a whole host of uh, challenges when you're managing a, a sales team, uh, and and we have we have a CRM system called HubSpot, which is really good on the marketing side of things, very good on the um, on the sales side of things, and and manages the lead generation side of things. So number one, I, I think when you're measuring people, we, there's there's lead indicators and there's lag indicators. And I think you you know the the lead indicators are the most important because they will lead to the lag effects. So don't focus on the result, focus on the activities that are going to lead to the result. So the measure is on the activities uh, that will lead to a good result. The other thing is, um, and Ryan would be more familiar with this, like what is actually an opportunity? You know, and salespeople tend to be very optimistic. Uh, we, uh, we don't consider something we don't consider something an opportunity until it's got something we call BANT. Now, BANT, BANT is budget, authority, need, and timing. So if you don't, unless you can demonstrate that you know what the budget is and there's budget allocated, 
unless you can demonstrate you know how decisions are going to be made and who the person in authority is, unless you can demonstrate that, that the customer actually wants what you're selling <laughs> and that there's some sort of, if people are talking about timing, then it's more real. So if you've got budget, authority, need and timing, yes, that's an opportunity. That's the first stage we have. Unless you have that, it's just a, a lead. And then we work it through from there in a consistent way. So we're all talking the same language so we know where our pipeline's at. Um, the, the next important stage is forecast, which basically says, we think we're going to land this, get ready. NGIS, get ready for this thing to land because we're going to be delivering this project. And that sets in train a whole heap of other things that start us preparing from a resourcing point of view and a planning perspective. That's a critical point. Don't call it too early, but don't call it too late either. We won't be ready. So getting that forecast call uh, ready. So just having consistent uh, semantics within your organisation from a sales perspective, I think it's very, very important. Right. So as we're kind of winding down toward making sure that I give my colleagues at ANZ a little bit of chance to talk at the end. Um, sort of five things that I, as a salesperson, have to understand in order to keep selling. Does this person that I'm talking to trust me? You mentioned trust earlier. Ryan mentioned trust. I mentioned trust. Do they believe that I'm saying that the product does what it does, that I know the company that I'm representing, that I know the customers, that I know what their need is, and that I actually am trying to sell them something that will help them. Because sales is something that you do for people. It's not something that you do to people. So do they trust me? Because if they don't trust me, they aren't going to trust the product, the company, or anything. We just might as well walk on. Do they need one in value? You're, to your point. Um, if I'm not, if they don't need this and they don't value it, then I'm like pushing string uphill. So let's walk on by. Do they have money, as you said? Do they have authority? And what's the time frame by which we need to not only close the deal, but execute on the deal? You know, it's one thing to have a quick closing. It's another to find out they want the result in 90 days. Different kind of sourcing question that you have. So I want to close and giving you guys maybe two or three quick pearls of wisdom, and then I'll turn it over to our colleagues at ANZ. So, I love the final denouement here. I, I, I would say probably, uh, and it stitches together what Paul mentioned on, on both band, the closing that you had, Dana. So manage your pipeline. Be really clear about what the real world triggers are as things move through the pipeline and manage your pipeline. That's your best lead indicator for what future success is going to be, would be sort of the first point for me. And then the second point attached to that would be make sure that uh, you invest time to build a sustainable pipeline that has momentum behind it. Don't look for the short-term deals. Look for the stuff that's going to build out credibility over the long term. Uh, that's a, mu a much better business to be running in the B2B space. Just for me, quickly, be prepared. So understand what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to do for a prospect or an opportunity so that you're, you're very targeted. Um, focus your metrics on activities, not the result. So get your sales team targeted on making sure they're doing the right things, which will lead to good results. 
And the last thing is um, invest in professional relationships with your customers because that's how your trust builds and selling is much, much easier, more natural when you you can talk openly and frankly with someone and have a good relationship with them. Awesome. Thank you, Paul and Ryan. Uh, this is a pretty incredible set of, of knowledge and, and tips for people in sales and selling. So over to you, Stuart. Thank you. Are you on mute, Stuart? There we go. That's better. I'm sorry. I should have been more prepared. Uh, look, thank you very much um, for the very informative session. Um, just quickly, I think the uh, the three key takeaways for me have been the nine stages of the continuum and the fact that it, it is a continuum. Uh, pricing and just how many different types of pricing types you can uh, you can have. And the overall one I think everybody touched on was trust, that people just won't, won't buy from you if, you're, if they don't trust you. Um, so on behalf of ANZ, I'd like to thank Dr. Yana, uh, Paul Farrell and Ryan, uh, Ryan Williams for their time, their insight on and sharing how they think about sales, the sales process and how to manage sales. Uh, and thank you to everybody online who's attended. Uh, for those of you that are in the broking industry, uh, we do have some professional development points that we've arranged for you, so you can see those on screen now. And for more information on how you can manage your business growth, uh, you can visit um, the website, uh, anz.com.au forward slash business, where there's a lot of tools and resources that we've organised uh, and licensed from the uh, Australian Centre for Business Growth. Um, or you can also go straight to the um, to their, their website, centreforbusinessgrowth.com.au. Um, so our next webinar will be on Wednesday, the 18th of November, uh, where Dr. Jana will be interviewing two other CEOs who've been through the growth program. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you then, 18th of October, where we'll be talking about strategies for growing revenue and margin. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>